Well, if you look around this room this morning, you could note obvious differences, different skin colors, different ages, different styles of dress. We might guess that one guy is a blue-collar worker and another is a white-collar worker. And maybe that's a businesswoman or a stay-at-home mom. And if we go a bit deeper and we get to know each other a little more, then we discover even more differences where we were born, what our parents did for work or how we tend to vote, different sports teams that we cheer for, what we do for recreation, on and on it goes. Each of us is a fairly unique combination of almost an infinite number of experiences and preferences and ideas and goals and identity markers. And the Bible, of course, celebrates such diversity. The church is not to be made up of one color or one age or one income bracket. Heaven certainly won't be monolithic. It'll be a beautiful display of peoples and languages and cultures and stories. Hell, for that matter. It's no respecter of color. It's no respecter of nationality or income or fill in the blank. But equally true from another angle is that there are really only two kinds of people in this world. We saw this last week in the book of Revelation. We said as we concluded that the book of Revelation paints vivid pictures of two worldviews and two kingdoms and two different kinds of kings and two eternal destinies. And we certainly saw that in the passage I just read in 2 Thessalonians 1. When Jesus returns, he will divide humanity not into an infinite number of special snowflakes, but two, the redeemed and the rebels. At the end of this age as we know it, only one thing will matter what we have done with God's Son. He divides everything. Or we could say everything divides upon Him. And so what will His coming, His return mean for me? Will it be my delight or will it mean my doom? When He comes again, will we mourn that what we perceive to be the real life, this life, is done? Or will we celebrate that true life and eternal life has now just begun? Last week we looked at Revelation 18, at what is primarily the world's lament of the end of the world. And this week we're going to see heaven's celebration of that very thing. Revelation 19, turn there in your Bibles if you would. I'll warn you up front that it is a curious bit of scripture. Even for experienced Christians, this passage can feel like 
a song from a different world, maybe even a song that maybe no one should ever sing, not even those in heaven. And in due course, we'll explore those kinds of questions about our passage. But right out of the gate, let's just dial into the stark reality of two eternal destinies which this passage paints in vivid color. I'll read a few verses from chapter 18, which we were looking at last week, uh, to get us sort of a running start into chapter 19. So look down, chapter 18, starting in verse 21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the, vo the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of peoples and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. And now chapter 19. After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. We'll stop there. Next week we'll pick up in the next song in Revelation 19, what we'll call the song of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, it gets a little happier even from here uh, this week. And then next week will be the end of this series. And then, Lord willing, in February, the beginning of it, we'll begin a series in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. Now, before we get into our passage too much, let me point out something that was, by way of structure in this part of the book of Revelation. You might notice in chapter 19, verse 1, John begins, after this. Now, that's a, a structural element to the whole book of Revelation. That happened in chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 7, verse 1, chapter 7, verse 9, chapter 15, verse 5, and then 18, verse 1, now here, 19, verse 1. After this, and then John lays out a vision in each case. I think what he really means is, and then I got another vision, and then I got another vision. These are not necessarily all in chronological order. Sometimes they seem to 
retrace the steps that have already been covered, but it's another vision. And yet, it's closely related to what came before, and so it's not totally separate. We certainly saw last week in chapter 18, verse 20, the call on heaven and saints to rejoice over her, that is Babylon, O heaven, and you saints, and apostles, and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Chapter 18, verse 20, is the call to rejoice. Judgment's coming. And in chapter 19, heaven does just that. As for the structure of these first five verses of chapter 19, like we saw last week, if you've got a a Bible that indents the poetry in the Bible, well, then it's pretty obvious to see what is Uh, what we would call songs, what we would call celebrations, what we'd call sort of the high points here. We have a series of songs. You have verse 1 and 2 being the primary or longest song, and then verse 3 is a a brief refrain, we could say, and and then in verse 5 we have uh, an invitation to sing, which is itself a song. So there's some structure. We can also identify three different singers in our passage, or three different sources of song. And it's no accident or coincidence that last week in chapter 18, there were three groups of mourners mourning the end of the world. And then this week in chapter 19, we have three different groups of praisers, we could say, three different voices of praise. Notice, verse 1, it's a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. These are redeemed saints. Then verse 4, you have 24 elders and four living creatures. Just a funny way in apocalyptic literature of referring to angels. And then verse 5, it's from the throne came a voice. This is probably Jesus himself speaking. That's the basic literary structure, but, but the content of what we have already read is essentially the same all the way through, quite unlike last week where you had a a big contrast between what angels sing and what the world sings as it mourns its losses. This week, I think it'll be most helpful for us to just think in terms of four themes in our passage, four R words that we can hang our thoughts on. The first is the reality of judgment, the reality of it. We Christians believe that as sure as we are sitting in this room on January 20th, 2019, that Jesus of Nazareth was born. He literally walked this earth. And he was no ordinary man. He was God who took on flesh and died upon the cross and was raised in the third day. And so we also must believe that as sure as we're sitting here today, he'll come again, just as he said. So if you're tempted to adopt a kind of Christianity that is simply about the past or simply for the present, but really has no need for something big in the future, well, I'd encourage you in 2019 to read through the New Testament looking for as many spots as you can which refer to Jesus coming again, 
which refer to the consummation, which refer to the end of this world and the beginning of the next. If you're tempted to have a kind of Jesus that was historical or simply for today, helping you get through tomorrow, but you don't really need him to return, I'd encourage you to to read the New Testament and see that you're missing something very, very big. I could just put it more positively then. The return of Christ is of massive importance to the New Testament. It's on pretty much every page that we read. 1 Peter 1 comes to mind, where Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace that's going to be revealed to you when Christ comes again. Set your hope fully on what changes when Christ comes again. And conversely, if you're not a Christian, well, you should give some careful attention to the Bible's teaching about Jesus' return among the many other things that you're evaluating and considering as you read through the Bible. If there is no final day and if there is no return of Christ, then Jesus wasn't a good moral teacher. He was a liar or insane. If you're banking on the assumption that there is no end to this world and there is no return of Christ, and I am fully aware that to the non-Christian world, this kind of talk of the return of Christ or the end of the world or a day of judgment, it sounds crazy. It sounds fanatical. It sounds hyper-fundamentalist. You might think of street preachers who've you know, painted giant signs. Those are the people who believe that Jesus is coming back. You might think no rational people or no scientific people do. Well, don't make the mistake that Peter wrote about in 2 Peter 3, where he warned of some who, they think that Jesus isn't coming back because things have always been the same. History, time, humanity, it's always been the same, they said. Therefore, it'll always be the same. But it hasn't. Everyone, whether a Christian or not, believes that there was a beginning and everyone, whether you believe in a worldwide flood or not, believes that there have been cataclysmic events on this planet in times past. And most people, Christian or not, religious or not, believe that there will be something of a big end to it all. Some think it's global warming. Others are convinced the robots are going to take over. An asteroid hitting the earth. You just think of movies about end times, right? Probably lots of movies are coming to mind as I go through this list of global warming and robots and an asteroid or nuclear war. Or maybe we'll just use up our planet's resources and maybe our overpopulation will lead to starvation. Well, if there is no God, then these are decent guesses about how it's going to end. Because uh, it's probably silly or naive to think that we humans 
won't one day mess it up on a grand scale. And if there's no God, then the end will come, however it comes, according to chance and chaos and by accident, according to human error, maybe our own ingenuity biting us in the butt. But if there is a God, then the end will come, not accidentally, not chaotically, not haphazardly, not unfortunately. So be assured of the end. Be, be assured of, of final judgment. And, and be further assured of it by pondering the reasons for it according to the Bible. That's number two. Let's consider the reasons for final judgment. We can start with God's character, which we see in verse 1, now that we actually get into the text of our passage. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. The end of time is God's end of time. It's his doing, it's his thing. Not the result of chaos or accident or human error. The end of time will accord with God's truthfulness and his perfect justice. We may want truth now. We might seek justice for our city in this day, and rightly so. But we won't always agree what's true and what's just. But in the end, we'll know. It comes from a true and just God, and his judgments are true and just. The final judgment will come, not just because of God's character, but also because this world really is bad. It's not all bad, but it is largely bad. We have to own up to that. We have to, in our bones, begin to ache for a fix because that government leader didn't fix it. And, and this so-called solution didn't really fix it. It improved it, but it didn't fix it. We need to long for the fix. Another reason for final judgment is that sin is really bad. Sin as itself is, well, it, it's the creature's cosmic rebellion against the creator. However small, however culturally acceptable it is, sin is really bad. Sin is throwing our lot with Satan. Sin is not just moral mistakes or slip-ups, like slipping on a banana peel and accidentally lying. No, sin is going against God and going against his ways. It's a proverbial shaking of the fist in the face of God and saying, we will not, and you will not. And particularly the sins that are embodied in this thing here called Babylon or the prostitute. Verse 2, the great prostitute has corrupted the earth with her immorality. Now we spent some time on this last week and so I won't belabor it. But I'll briefly say for those who weren't with us last week that Babylon here, this prostitute is really a metaphor for all that is wicked in this world. It represents all that goes against God and all that goes against his people, especially when it's institutionally against God and, and against his people. 
It's uh, raw materialism and economic exploitation. It's power, pride, pleasures, the wrong kind, self-promotion, and presumption. This is the prostitute's immorality. Again, that's another metaphor here. It shows the seductive power of Babylon. It's, it's like sex. And we saw last week, it, her effects are, are like drunkenness. And for first century Christians who first got this book we call Revelation, they would have immediately thought of the great Roman Empire in their day with all of its idolatry and wealth, with all of its allure and its coercion, even its persecution. They persecuted Christians. The reason for the final judgment, in part, it is that the world continues to kill God's messengers. That's what the Bible says. We live in a in a time and in a land of relative peace and ease. But that's not the norm on the grand scale of things uh, in history. Christians usually are persecuted people, sometimes severely so. Just Google Christians in China if you need some, some fresh stories about Christians suffering under under a harsh regime. Or just read Revelation if you need a reminder from that book. It was written out of persecution. It was written for persecuted people. Let me just show you this. Back up to chapter 1 in this book of Revelation. Here's something like a an introductory thesis statement in chapter 1, verse 9. John, the writer, introduces himself to his readers. I, John, your brother, and, notice, partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. He was on the island called Patmos. Why? On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was thrown onto an island there to die, exiled away from the rest of civilization, because he spoke on behalf of Jesus. Now flip over to chapter 6. Verse 9, here's a, a vision. John sees in heaven, under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were given white robes and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Even still today, we can say there are more martyrs apparently still to pass from this world to the next. And we'll join those in heaven who wonder aloud to God himself, how long? And God says, a little while longer. Look at chapter 16. Here's one of the 
songs that we didn't look at in the book of Revelation in this series. But here in chapter 16, verse 5, here's what people are singing in heaven. Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was for you brought these judgments. For they, the world, Rome, China today, they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And in chapter 19, our passage, what does it say? God has judged the great prostitute for he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. She killed the servants and she will, she'll pay for it. We could put it this way. The book of Revelation was written for a people who need nothing less than cosmic upheaval. They need the return of Christ. They didn't need just a little bit more money to keep the kids in Christian education. Nothing wrong with that. They, they weren't crying out from the altar, Oh Lord, please let the churches just be more friendly. the recipients of the book of Revelation didn't need it because they needed better Christian friends and deeper Christian relationships and, and people who understand me and a ministry that meets my needs and, and the, the, the need to be used in the church. Now, there's a time to talk about those kind of things. But they needed nothing less than the hope and promise that Jesus is going to come back and deal with it all. A final reckoning, a final rescue for those whose eyes have been on him. And a, a, a final, no, a final rescue for them. And a final reckoning or, or retribution for those who, for their whole lives, refused to look his way. That's what we saw in 2 Thessalonians 1. The world's judgment is the Christian salvation. Two sides of the same coin. You don't have one without the other. Just like we saw back in Exodus 15, when God overthrew the Egyptian army in order to save his people. To save one, he had to stop the other. The world's judgment is the Christian salvation and the Christian's vindication. And so the reality of Christ's future coming and fixing allows Christians now to suffer without personal vindication, without personal vengeance. If Revelation 19 to you seems, you know, otherworldly or just unimaginable, the idea of celebrating God's judgment on the world Surely part of the reason for that is that we have the relative comfort and peace and ease that we have in this country at this time. But if mom had been beaten and dad had been, had been beheaded and your best friend had been thrown to the lions 
and his sister was burnt alive. You might begin to say, it's going to be done? Hallelujah. Which leads thirdly to the response to judgment. The response, in short, it's praise. Again, last week, three songs of mourning. The world mourns that the world is ending. And in this week, three songs of praise that Jesus has come back or is coming back. Again, that was called for in verse 20 of chapter 18 last week. And it's as if the judgment has happened It hasn't yet, but it's as if it happened because it's as good as done. And now in chapter 19, heaven rejoices and praises God. Hallelujah. Three times in our passage we find that word, hallelujah. There's a fourth time in verse 6, which we'll see next week. Hallelujah. It means praise the Lord. There are only four mentions of this word, hallelujah, in the whole New Testament. All right here in this one chapter. They're drawing on the many occurrences of that phrase, hallelujah, or praise the Lord, that are found in the Psalms especially. It's interesting to me that the word hallelujah, a Hebrew word, has carried into so many languages and cultures without translation. It's curious. Our our Bibles, our, our English Bibles, our translations but when we come to this word, hallelujah, we have a, what's called a transliteration. It's just a Hebrew word with English letters. That's really rare. Amen would be another example of it. Amen in the Greek. And we just know it as the English word amen. It's been said that there are three words that are universally recognized in the world today. Hallelujah. Amen and McDonald's. (laughs) As for this one, hallelujah, here in our Bibles, hallelujah. Well, I think it's probably not translated, praise the Lord. One, because we're used to it somehow. That just happened. And number two, because it's almost like, remember this word, an onomatopoeia? It sounds like what it is. It's kind of like that. Hallelujah! It's an exclamation. It's a shout. It's an expression of joy. It's calling others to join in on the praise. Notice it's loud and it's exuberant. It's a great multitude with a loud voice. And they cried out. And angels fell down and worshipped. And they responded, Amen. Hallelujah. Notice that their praise is corporate it's responsive it's what we call antiphonal back and forth in fact it's interesting to notice the geography here the the geographic progression in other heavenly visions and revelation it moves from the center outward from the throne to the angels to the saints and here in our passage it works the other way from the multitude to the angelic creatures closest to the throne to the center the very throne itself and the point is not that there are good seats and bad seats in heaven you know there are vips and those in the nosebleeds no The point is that heaven's praise will be reverberating and antiphonal and responsive. Notice their praise is God-centered. It's all about him. 
Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. You see, just in Revelation, these words, salvation, power, glory, things like that, they're given in shorthand form without putting them in whole sentences, we could say. Meaning, what's really being said here is our salvation is from God. And and by his power, he has accomplished it. And so, for his glory, credit to him goes. Notice how these songs are thoughtfully descriptive. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. There are reasons for God's praise, just like there are reasons for his return. And again, here's where the severity of the persecution of these first century Christians in the Roman world is so relevant to the heaviness of the judgment that's described here. So before we too quickly grimace or wince at the idea of heaven's celebration of judgment, again, just put yourself in the shoes of a people who were a few decades into state-sponsored persecution and execution. And the final judgment of that whole system, whether Rome or in any other part of the world or all over the world. The final judgment meant the finality of human rebellion, the finality of innocent murder. We need a final reckoning. Things are not right in this world. Will God not judge this broken world? We all, Christian or not, have an innate sense of justice. Little kids say to each other, that's not fair. And adults say it too, maybe with less of a whine. We have an innate sense of justice and a a real desire for justice to happen. You watch one of those crime shows on TV like Dateline. And a, a gruesome rape and murder takes place. And eventually, there's the courtroom scenes. And the family of the victim, the family's there in the courtroom waiting for and hoping for a guilty verdict. There's outrage when the guilty are declared to be not guilty. And there is celebration. In relief, when the guilty are declared what they are, guilty. Justice is right. And yet our best attempts at justice are flawed, sometimes thwarted, or even just insufficient. Hitler killed himself in a bunker. He was not starved and naked, thrown into a gas chamber to die millions of deaths over and over. Where is the justice of a Hitler 
ending his life with a clean bullet to the head. Well, hallelujah, there will be a final reckoning. God's righteous justice will be realized and God will be glorified and his saints will praise him for it. And yet, I have a feeling that that doesn't yet satisfy you enough. I suspect that many of us still have questions about this passage, about the severity of the punishment and the celebration of it. So let me just dig in deeper on that. Notice verse 3, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Smoke, that's her torment. Forever and ever, that doesn't mean a pretty long time. It's forever and ever. And so you wonder about the severity of this. How is this just? How is it just that there would be eternal suffering for a finite number of sins and a finite number of years of sinning? Well, three bullet points come to mind. Sin is infinitely bad. Therefore, its punishment is along infinite lines. Another bullet point would be sin will be ongoing, even in hell. If you think that those with Hearts hardened and dead and full of sin will reach hell and be remorseful, repentant, and wishing for God's mercy. You're wrong. And a third bullet point would be God's justice may not be according to your justice. And when in doubt, you go with his. A bigger question regards the celebration of all this, though. I mean, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. How will redeemed sinners in heaven celebrate judgment of other sinners? Well, a few things to say on this. We're probably on safe ground to, to note well that this is a scene in heaven, not on earth. Jonathan Edwards was one who made a pretty big deal about how Christians cannot in this life celebrate God's judgment in this sort of way. He thought that it was these kind of songs would be strictly reserved for heaven. If you want to read his thoughts on that, he had an essay called The End of the Wicked Considered by the Righteous. You can Google it and find it online for free. And I think he might be right. Though I do also want to insist that Revelation 19 was meant for a Christian's comfort now, in this world, not just in heaven. And yet, he's right. There is something to the fact that before Jesus comes again, we are people who are at the very least torn as Christians. Torn between these two things. On the one hand, yeah, we at times cry out for justice. We at times join the psalmist and say, how long, O Lord? We pray, Lord, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray with John at the end of Revelation, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray that knowing 
That's salvation for some and judgment for others. And so on the other hand, like our Savior, we, we were to have compassion on sinners because we ourselves are sinners. And we know we have a mission to those people. We want people to be saved before Jesus comes back. And so we believe in and we hold out a gospel that reaches way, way down into really sinful hearts. So note that it's in heaven. Keep in mind that we will, in heaven, beyond any doubt at all, we will know that God is right and just and true in all that he does in all that he is. We won't wonder for the least bit whether any of his acts or any bits of his character were righteous or good or fair. We will celebrate all that he is in heaven and we won't do so blushingly. We won't say, well, we love the love part, God. But this wrath stuff? Well, no. Remember the undistracted, unmixed joy of heaven. In heaven, we won't be torn between sinners and God. He'll wipe every tear from our eyes. No more mourning, no more sadness. We won't be distracted by compassion for the lost. We will have God in him as our central focus. And don't forget that in heaven we won't, we won't the least bit ever forget or be confused about what we've been saved from. Heaven's celebration of God's just judgment on the world is nothing like a na 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 to the world. It's nothing like a, well, yeah, stick it to them. Because for a little while they stuck it to us. It won't be proud, personal vindication, a kind of me versus them, and see, I win, I knew I was right and you were wrong. It'll be praise to God because he is right and just and true. And he was so long-suffering and so patient for so long, but he will not be mocked. Which leads, fourthly, to the restraint of judgment. We've seen the reality, the reasons for it, the response to it. Implied, I think, is the restraint of judgment because as we said last week, and we need to say the same this week, especially for non-Christians who might be here, the point of this passage, especially for non-Christians, is that this hasn't happened yet. Judgment is coming, yes. We don't know when, it is coming, but it hasn't happened yet. And God's delay of his judgment isn't proof that he's not just or proof that he's not there. And that's what you hear in the world today. If there's a God, he has to be just. And because this world isn't just, there must not be a God. But the delay of God's judgment is his mercy 
and his patience and potentially your salvation. Hear this from 2 Peter 3. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, the promise to come back. As some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, and it will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Or similarly, and briefly in Romans 2, verse 4, where Paul says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you presume upon these, take them for granted, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I say again, God's delay of his just judgment on this world is not proof that he isn't just, not proof that he isn't there. It's proof that he is amazingly, breathtakingly merciful and patient. And it means you must take advantage in a good way. You must make opportunity today for this, for this your salvation. You might say, he is coming back. He hasn't come back. So when will he come back? Well, those are the street preachers that are weird, not the ones that say Jesus is coming back and we don't know when, but the ones who name a date. We don't know when. Not only do I not know when he's coming back, I don't know if you'll live tomorrow apart from him coming back. Today is the time. This is the hour for salvation. He has delayed some 2,000 years almost thus far. But beware, he will not delay forever. If you haven't yet come to put your eternal saving trust in Jesus, believing that by yourself, on your own, you're in trouble. You've sinned, you've gone away, you've gone astray, you've gone against his ways. But maybe you today would come to believe that Jesus came in order that we might be forgiven, saved, redeemed, washed white by his blood is the language of the book of Revelation. If you believe that today, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, Romans 10 says, and eternally so. It's not because you've earned it. It's only because you got, finally, that you couldn't earn it and he's done it all for you. I pray you would believe that today before it's too late. And the point of this passage for Christians is twofold. We should give praise to God for all that he is and all that he has done and will do we should praise him even now. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. That's why we're here this morning, to give him praise. That's why we'll be with him one day in glory, to give him praise. And so the second point for the Christian from this passage is that we can be assured now, 
of God's perfect justice in the end. And we can live now with the end in mind. The Bible says, what can man do to me? The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, all these things, sword, peril, trouble, hunger, thirst, nakedness, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Because nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. We have seen the end. And it's beautiful. In the end, evil is vanquished. Undeserving sinners are redeemed. And heaven's saints and angels join together for all eternity to exuberantly and loudly and thoughtfully give praise to God forever and ever. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, whoever it is in verse 5 that calls out from heaven to servants, to those who fear him, small and great, calling us to praise our God, we say, hallelujah, amen. We thank you, Lord, for salvation. We thank you, Lord, for your justice. We thank you, Lord, for your glorious plan, and we pray for your help to trust you where you have us in this great plan. Geographically, yes, but also in time. Help us as we wait May our eyes be on you. May we long for heaven's praise, but may we, well, maybe we begin to imitate it even now. Help us, Lord, as we sing one more song to our great God this morning. May it be to your glory, and may we be enthralled and in awe with who you are and what you've done. Amen.